If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Psalm 119, verse 37. The bulletin says that the title of the sermon is Revive Me in Your Ways. This is only half of verse 37. The first half of verse 37 is what is necessary to happen so that God can revive the psalmist in his ways. And that is the psalmist appeals to God to turn his his eyes away from looking at vanity. And this morning I want to talk about vanity. And we'll also talk about the ways of the Lord. But I want to spend some time talking about vanity because I think it's a subject that we're fairly unfamiliar with. We don't generally talk about it. We don't have a lot of conversations about it. Although it is certainly prevalent in our lives and prevalent around us. I want to read to get our minds thinking about this this morning, an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? Do you realize? Look around. Put your hands up. Look around. Let me tell you, that is really unusual. Okay? That's really unusual. Most people today have never heard of it. So be thankful that somebody introduced you to Pilgrim's Progress. But I'm going to read this morning the excerpt surrounding... Pilgrim and faithful coming into Vanity Fair. So listen as I read. Then I saw in my dream that when they were got out of the wilderness, they presently saw a town before him, and the name of the town is Vanity. And at the town there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. It beareth the name of Vanity Fair because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity. And also because all that is there sold or that cometh thither. It's not a word we use a lot. You understand what it means? All that cometh thither is vanity. As is the saying of the wise, all that cometh is vanity. That's from Ecclesiastes. This fair is no new erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. I will show you the original of it. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city, as these two honest persons are, that is, pilgrim and Christian, or I'm sorry, Christian and faithful. And Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their companions, perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through the town of Vanity, they contrived there to set up a fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And moreover, at this fair there, at all, there are at all times to be seen jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. There are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood-red color. This fair, therefore, is an ancient thing of long standing and a very great fair. Now these pilgrims, as I said, must needs go through the fair, 
Well, so they did. But behold, even as they entered into the fair, all the people in the fair were moved and the town itself, as it were, in a hubbub about them. And that for several reasons. For first, the pilgrims were clothed with such kind of raiment as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in the fair. The people, therefore, of the fair made a great gazing upon them. Some said they were fools, some that they were bedlams, and some they were outlandish men. Secondly, and as they wandered at their, wondered at their apparel, so did they likewise at their speech. For few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke of the language of Canaan. But they that kept the fair were men of this world, so that from one end of the fair to the other they seemed barbarians each to the other. Thirdly, but that which did not a little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very, high, set very light by, their, by all their wares. They cared not so much as to look upon them. And if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And looking upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. One chanced mockingly, beholding the carriage of the men, to say unto them, What will you buy? But they, looking gravely upon him, said, We buy the truth. At that there was an occasion taken to despise the men the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachfully, and some calling upon others to smite them. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Before he could be revived, he had to have his eyes turned away from vanity. When we listen to Bunyan's account of Vanity Fair, I hope as you are hearing me read, even though the, the language was old and difficult and different from the way we speak somewhat in English today, I, ho I hope you heard and understood some of the themes of vanity that we understand today. What do we know about vanity today? What do we know about vanity? Well, we know that there's a magazine with the title, what? Vanity Fair. Did you ever think about the connection? How many of you thought about the connection? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Can you imagine naming a magazine after such a negative account? I went to Vanity Fair's website in getting ready for this sermon. Don't ever go there. But I did go there. And I was looking for their statement of reason to exist and I found it and this is it from world affairs to entertainment business to fashion crime to society Vanity Fair is a cultural catalyst that drives the popular dialogue globally with its unique mix of narrative journalism stunning photography and social commentary the magazine accelerates ideas and images to the world center stage Are you impressed? What is vanity? This magazine is vanity. Completely. It's aptly named. What is vanity? Well, vanity, some of us understand to be self-pride. It's, it's the necessity of putting all of those consonants after our name whenever we sign something or have our name on a document, showing all of our degrees. Vanity is also a facade. 
It's like a false front in a building. Have you you seen buildings with false fronts? It's what you would see in old westerns, western cities as the the, they would build a town up along a street and they would put a false front in the building that was maybe two stories tall and it looked very grand and it had a lot of turnings and um, embellishments on it. But if you walked around the corner and saw the back of the facade, what did you see? Usually a flat, one-story building with tar paper on the side because it was a facade. It was a false face. Vanity is a lie. Vanity is a lie. It's, it's what we do when we sit down. Uh, you guys have a, a piece of furniture in your house called a vanity. Anybody have one of those? We have a vanity in our house. Why is it called a vanity? Because it's made out of vanity wood? It's where we sit down and we put on our makeup, right, ladies? It's where the husbands stand behind their wives and they straighten their ties and admire themselves. It's vain. It's a lie. It's where we convince ourselves we're more than we are. It's where we try to put things on that will help other people to believe we're something that we're not. I don't know. But it's a lie. Vanity is worthless. It has no significance. It has no real meaning. It has no lasting significance. Do you know where it is? It's all around us. It's all around you. We can look in any direction and see it immediately. If we're driving in our car, we can see it easily. It's in our video games, our movies, our television, our radio, our magazines, our billboards, our cigarettes, our alcohol, our drugs, our popular brands, eBay, Facebook. Facebook is a newly discovered thing by me, and and, uh, I claim that it is completely vain. It's vanity. Macs, cars, trucks, SUVs, boats, motorcycles, houses, apartments, farms, buildings, businesses, furniture, art, restaurants, diets, diet pills, cosmetics, lingerie, work, jobs, football, baseball, basketball, soccer, jewelry, dresses, suits, jeans, sex, money, influence, power, strength, beauty, intelligence, education, children, parents, husbands, wives, church buildings, politics, and you can add anything else to the list that can't be burned up with fire. And you have something that can be used as vanity. They're material. They're not evil by being material. They're evil by how they're marketed and how we approach them. They're evil and vain by the significance that we place in them or the significance that we think they will give to us. And that's how they're packaged and marketed to us. Promises are made. Promises are made. Promise that they will give us purpose. That they'll give us significance. They'll give us a reason. We live in Vanity Fair. We do. We live in Vanity Fair. It's hearkening to us all the time. If you're my age... The things that call to you are different than the things that call to you if you're a junior high school student. 
if you're older than I am, but every one of us is being called to by the vanities that surround us constantly. We live in Vanity Fair. It's one of the greatest sins of the church today. But I got a little more to say. It's not just one of the greatest sins of the church. It's one of the greatest sins of our church, of this church. We love vanity. We look at vanity. Matthew Henry says, The honors, pleasures, and profits of the world are the vanities, the aspect and prospect of which draw multitudes away from the paths of religion and godliness. The eye, when fastened on these, infects the heart with the love of them so that it is alienated from God and divine things. And therefore, as we ought to make a covenant with our eyes and lay a charge upon them that they shall not wander after, much less fix upon that which is dangerous, so we ought to pray that God by His providence would keep vanity out of our sight and that by His grace He would keep us from being enamored with the sight of it. What's wrong with vanity? What's wrong with it? What's the problem with it? What is it? Well, vanity essentially is love of this world. Vanity is worldliness. It is worldliness. It's darkness. And God's people have always opposed it because they understood what would happen when people pursued vanity. So in the Bible, we read about vanity. We read about turning our eyes away. We read all through the Scriptures about the emptiness of vanity and that it's worthless and it doesn't finally produce for us anything. The early church fathers would speak to the people about vanity. I'm always interested when I see this theme all through church history. The fathers talking about vanity. The reformers talking about vanity. The revivalists talking about vanity and calling people away from it. Telling them to leave it. Turn their eyes away from it. Be rid of it. Listen to the words of, from the epistle of Barnabas, dated about 100 A.D., talking about the way of darkness. But the way of darkness is crooked and full of cursing. For it is the way of eternal death. Barnabas, this is one of the Antinocene fathers, the early church fathers. It is the way of eternal death with punishment, in which we are the thing, we, uh, in, in which way are the things that destroy the soul, that is, idolatry, overconfidence, the arrogance of power, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, adultery, murder, theft, haughtiness, transgression, deceit, malice, self-sufficiency, poisoning, magic, avarice, want of the fear of God. In this way, too, are those who persecute the good, those who hate truth, those who love falsehood, those who know not the reward of righteousness, those who cleave not to that which is good, those who attend not with just judgment to the widow and orphan, those who watch not to the fear of God, but incline to wickedness, from whom meekness and patience are far off, Persons who love vanity, follow after a reward, pity not the needy, labor not in aid of him who is overcome with toil, who are prone to evil speaking, who know not him who made them, who are murderers of children, 
destroyers of the workmanship of God, who turn away from him that is in want, and who oppress the afflicted, who are advocates of the rich, who are unjust judges of the poor, and who are in every respect transgressors. Things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? Things haven't changed much. 1 John 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Vanity keeps us from the way of God. Our hearts are infected with the love of the world. And the consequences are dire. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it mean for us to choose our own lives? What, is, what does these verses, what do these verses say? It means to choose to save our own lives. They say that it means to gain the world. When we gain the world, we save our own lives, but we lose our souls. It is worldliness. It is the pursuit of vanity that is the gaining of our own lives but the losing of our souls. In his book, Death in the City, Francis Schaeffer describes the professing Christian who does not look at the eternal, but only at the material. So you've got somebody who is professing to be a Christian, and all they think about is this world. He says they're like people who think that they come to Christ, they're converted, and they're given a battery. And... There's two events in their lives where they actually have an encounter with God supernaturally. That is when they're given the battery, and that is when they're taken to heaven, and they're with him forever, and they're actually plugged in. And so the battery just keeps them until that time. And there's no connection with God from the time they were converted until the time they go to heaven. Right? And so he's saying they live in this world, but they never have an eye beyond this world, beyond the material of this world, and so they're never looking to God. And he says... What one must realize is that the seeing world, that seeing the world as a Christian does not mean just saying, I am a Christian, I believe in the supernatural world, and then stopping. It is possible to be saved through faith in Christ and then spend much of our lives in the materialist chair. We can say we believe in the supernatural world and yet live as though we were no, there were no supernatural in the universe at all. There wasn't. God's kingdom. Live as if there isn't a God who had made us and who will judge us and who lives to give us power, the same power he used to raise Christ to make us triumphant over sin. Schaefer wasn't specifically talking about vanity here, but he could have been. The results are exactly the same. Many times people look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and they talk about being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And I think about this idea of, of uh, Schaefer saying that we're seated in the seat of the materialist. And I think about 
Paul saying we're seated by the Holy Spirit, saying we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And so what does it mean to be seated in the seat of the materials and seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Well, a lot of people say, well, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But they live like they're seated in the seat of the materialists all the time. And they don't realize that surrounding the context, surrounding uh, Paul saying that you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies is that God has saved you from sin and from your wicked lifestyle. And he has saved you to do works that he has called and designed for you to do from before the earth was made. And so you're not seated in the seat of the materialist. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies as you're on this earth. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and your attention is to God. Your attention is to the supernatural. Your attention is to eternal things. It's not to this world. It's not to the vanities of this world. And that's what he meant. But we don't think about it that way because we don't want to give attention to the fact that we have something to do here. We want to run on the battery. And just get here from there to from here to there and not have any difficulty on the way. When we focus on the temporal and not the eternal, our hearts are turned away from God. Why would the psalmist want his eyes turned away from looking at vanity? Because he knew that his love of the world would dull his heart to the truth and finally keep him from loving God. Psalm 119 is all about loving God's Word. It's about loving God's law. But think about it. Think about it. What was the psalmist's Bible? What Bible was he reading? What did he have? The Pentateuch? Right? He had the Ten Commandments. Maybe some historical book. He had the law. He had God's law. Have you read this? Have you read the law? Have you read what it says? It tells you what to do. It tells you what not to do. It says an awful lot of what not to do, doesn't it? Says so a lot of things you shouldn't do. There are a lot of prohibitions there. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Why would he love this? Why would the psalmist love it? Why would he love a place where God says no many times? But he does. What's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with him? It's just a bunch of negatives. How could we love the law when it doesn't have any grace in it? I'm sure glad we don't have to love it now that we're in the New Testament time. I'm glad, that, I'm glad that the law has passed away and everything's grace, 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 and I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Aren't you? What was wrong with the psalmist? Nothing. What's wrong with the law? We've convinced ourselves that it's bad. We've created theological systems that implicitly teach people that it's bad and we're glad we're not under it anymore and we're freed from it. We don't have to pay attention to it. It doesn't mean anything. God doesn't command anything of us, expect anything of us. We're glad that the people in the Old Testament were saved by the works, but we're glad that we in the New Testament are saved by grace and faith, right? We read about the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. We pretend that it isn't in the New Testament. We're glad that there's no more need to fear, no need for the fear of the Lord. I hope you understand how extremely facetious I'm being. What's wrong with the law? 
what's wrong with God's prohibitions? They're the prohibitions of a father. They're the prohibitions of a parent. His discipline is the, the certain reality of his love. What's wrong with his law? Absolutely nothing. The fear of the Lord, what's wrong with that? It's the starting place for believers in the Old and the New Testaments. What's wrong with it? Absolutely nothing. It's true that the law is powerless to save us. It's true that the law can damn us because it exposes and and introduces us to the attributes and character of God. Those attributes and that character against whom we are truly judged. But God is beautiful and holy. And His law is no less because it just talks about Him. Beautiful and holy. If the law is not bad, why don't we love it? If it's not bad, why don't we love it? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, why do we want to suppress it? Well, you don't want me to say why. Because it's a cosmic downer. It's because we're wicked. It's because our, our hearts are infected with the love of this world. Our eyes have stared at mountains and mountains of vanity. And we've led our children and our neighbors and our friends and our family members to Vanity Fair with us. And we've indulged. The psalmist says that God's word is sweeter than honey, but we've lost our appetite for it. He says the words of the mouth of God are worth more than a pile of gold, but we don't even open the book. He says he will speak of God's testimonies before kings, but we're afraid to tell our neighbors that we go to church. He says he will treasure God's word in his heart as a shield against impurity. And we sign up for covenant eyes. Now I'm telling you, what's wrong with covenant eyes? Nothing. But it doesn't doesn't teach you the fear of God. The psalmist knew that if he knew God's character, he would be afraid to sin. He would be afraid to disobey. He would be be afraid to defy that God. And he only knew how to be afraid because he knew who that God was. He says his heart trembles in the fear of the Lord. We say we will have no God that we must fear. His every word is prayer. We talk about prayer, but we scarcely pray. The psalmist has walked the narrow way. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow. It's narrow. It's, it's pressed. It's afflicted. The way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so we say, give us grace, grace, grace. But what we're really saying is, give us the world. The world. Give us the wide way. Give us the wide gate, the broad way. 
We don't want to be pressed. We don't want to be afflicted. We don't want to be pushed into this narrow path. And God says, no. No. And so we have two ways before us this morning. Two ways that we have to choose one of them. One is the way of vanity. It is the wide path. It is the path that leads to destruction. And the Proverbs say that it is the way that seems right to us, but its end is the way of death. That's one path that we could choose this morning. And it's a path we've chosen many times. And there is another path, and that is God's way. And it's the way the psalmist asks to be revived in when he says, turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways, in your ways, the small gate, the narrow way, the way that leads to life. Last week after small group, we were having, well, you do probably too in your small group, we were having the smaller group after small group where we end up sitting around and talking. We were talking about spiritual disciplines. I don't know, maybe it was two weeks ago. We were talking about spiritual disciplines, and Jake Menzel said, he said, spiritual disciplines put us in the way of God. At first, I didn't understand what he was saying. Like, we're getting in God's way and we're, we're obstructing him somehow with spiritual disciplines. But, but then I realized that, you know, it sunk in finally. What he was saying is that if we are to have a relationship with God, we must put ourselves intentionally in the places where God loves to commune with his people, with his children. We have to put ourselves in God's way. Take the kingdom by force. Stand in front of the truck as it's driving down the road. Putting ourselves in God's way. How do we put ourselves in God's way? What do we do? Well, I'm going to give you a list of ways. It's not the complete list, but I'm going to give you a list of ways. And I want you to think about the fact that this list, as you think about them, you won't find it easy to experience vanity in these things. Although it's possible. This is the way that we can put ourselves in the way of God. These are the disciplines he's given us, some of them. We have his word. We have the scripture. The words of God given to us. God breathed. We have prayer. We can speak to him. We have preaching. We have Bible reading for our families. We have instruction in our families. We have prayer with our families. We have teaching. We have the testimony of those who have been faithful before us. We have the confession of sin. We have fasting. We have edifying fellowship like the smaller group after small group or small group. We have obedience. We have witnessing to friends, family, neighbors, and co-workers. We have loving the poor. We have visiting the sick. We have songs of worship and thanksgiving. We have the Lord's meal, putting ourselves in the way of God. But as we do these disciplines, what we find out is that we're powerless because we're so used to looking at vanity 
So we want to have Bible time with our family. We want to read the Scripture. We want to pray. And what is our normal habit? What's your normal habit? Is your normal habit that you've got to hurry and eat? Or the normal habit that you don't eat together ever, so you can't have that time? Nobody's ever in the same room at the same time in your house? Or you've got to hurry and eat so that you can get to the, to the sports event? Or you've got to hurry and eat so you can watch the movie? Or play the video game? And that calls you. That's the vanity. It calls you. It's an empty promise. It's not going to give you anything. All of the reality is eternal and all the emptiness is what we think is what's real, what's around us. And so we look at this and we say, I want to do this, I want to do this, but oh, we're so used to looking at the vanity, we're so used to going that way. This is where we need to sit down and pray the psalmist's prayer because it requires the power of God. It requires the action of God and it requires our faith that He can and will do it. That He will turn our eyes away from it. Think about how we are on Sunday morning when we sing. We sing the song, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, for my soul longs and even faints for you. O here my heart is satisfied within your presence. I sing beneath the shadow of your wings. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And we sing that. We sing it by faith on Sunday morning. But we demonstrate that we prefer this world's promises most all of the rest of the time. We're sitting in the wrong chair. Do we believe that God's courts are better than this world? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? How could they be? How would we know? Our hearts and minds aren't filled with the knowledge of them. We're not steeped in the reality of them. And we're focused on vanity. Do we see the glory of God in the face of Christ? We'll not see it by reading Vanity Fair. We'll not see it by watching Spider-Man movies. We'll only see it by putting ourselves in the way ourselves in the way of God. We will see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you believe in the things not seen? Do you believe that the attainment of them is superior to the attainment of the things seen? Because that's what we're talking about. The attainment of the things not seen is superior to the attainment of the things seen. That's why we take the narrow path. That's why we give up our lives so that we can find them. Is having Jesus superior to honey and gold? Is the life to come better than this life? Is it worth losing this life to gain? Is heaven better than earth? 
we can ask our Heavenly Father to revive us in His ways. Does He have the power to turn our eyes away from vanity? Does He? Yes. I'm going to read a couple of chapters of, or not chapters, but a couple of sections of Scripture as I close. I want you to listen to the themes, the eternal themes in these passages. Listen for the eternal things as I read. Let them sink into your mind and pray that God will turn us away from vanity. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Second Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen. While we look not at the things which are seen. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Do you understand that? In this world, if you feel comfortable in this world, it's not a good thing. You should be longing I should be longing to be clothed with the garments that God has prepared for me. We do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us to us the spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Did you hear the eternal themes in those words? Do you want to be revived in his ways? We have to turn our eyes away from vanity. We have to have the power of God to do this. It is important for a number of reasons. And God is powerful to do it. And if you're like me this morning, you're thinking, okay, we're looking at taking communion and all Dave just did was tell me all about my vanity. And Dave told himself about his vanity too. But this is the way of God that we can put ourselves in. You understand? You have exercised vanity. You have looked at vanity. We're going to pray. Let's confess our sins to God. And let's ask Him to turn our eyes away from it. And let's ask Him to put us in His way. And then let's, in that position, come to the Lord and remember Christ through whose sacrifice we have been delivered from this. Okay? Let's pray.